0: Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week, running with kids. How to make sure they have a blast when they hit the road. Then in the kick, the most decorated college runner of all time makes his mark at the NCAA Indoor Championships. And we remember the great Ed Whitlock who passed away this week at the age of 86. Ed rewrote the record books on aging and performance and altered our perceptions of human endurance. I was lucky enough to meet Ed at the Runner's World Heroes of Running Awards in 2006 in New York City. Ed was, at the time, just 74, and he had recently become the first runner over the age of 70 to break three hours in the marathon. Amby Burfoot, introduced Ed at the Heroes of Running event. And with his characteristic charm and sense of humor and complete self-effacement, Ed said that people can achieve far more than they give themselves credit for. He also said that all records are made to be broken. And in the intervening years, Ed just continued to break them. In The Kick, Brian and Kit will talk a bit more about what records he went on to set. But I just wanted to say that we will miss him and miss watching him continually show us what's possible. But in our first segment, another exemplar of remarkable endurance. Our producer Sylvia Ryerson goes on a run with Carolyn Mather, who has logged more lifetime miles than any other female runner ever. But despite running for several hours every day for decades, Carolyn was actually surprised to find out she held this distinction.
1: In fact, When Ambie told me, Burfoot, that I was in the top women in the country, my response was, that can't possibly be true. Everybody runs a lot, but obviously not as much as me. Um, And I knew that, but I didn't think it was anything very special.
0: We're grateful to Carolyn for letting us tag along on one of her runs, which means you got to tag along too. That's coming right up, so stick around, and thanks for joining us. Carolyn Mather is an unusual runner, in a good way, in several ways, actually. She has completed 132 marathons and has a PR of 251.40. That PR, which she ran in 1984, was just 24 seconds off qualifying for the 1984 U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials. She counts as friends several stars of the running world. Athletes like Camille Heron, a three-time Olympic marathon trials qualifier, Colleen DeRoyke, a four-time Olympian, and her own Ambie Burfoot, winner of the 1968 Boston Marathon. Carolyn is also a coach for the Atlanta Track Club. But what really sets her apart from everyone else is one number, 200,000. On September 5th, 2016, Carolyn became the first woman on record to run more than 200,000 lifetime miles. We featured Carolyn, who is now 68, in the March issue of Runner's World. For that story, Ambie compiled a bunch of notable numbers about this incredible athlete, like the fact that she eats 20 Hershey Kisses every day. And another notable number, 7,579. That is Carolyn's highest annual mileage total which he put in in 2015. With all that in mind, it's remarkable that our producer, Sylvia, was able to catch up with Carolyn last fall for an interview about how she felt holding this title and what it is exactly that keeps her going.
1: I live in Morganton, Georgia, officially. Um, I'm 15 miles from the nearest Grocery store, filling station,
2: most anything. So it's fairly remote. Late last fall, Carolyn and I were in a very different setting, dodging heavy foot traffic in Prospect Park, Brooklyn. She had already run 15 miles. I joined her, on my bike, for the last three miles of her workout. The previous day, Carolyn had run the majority of the New York City Marathon course in reverse. She started in Manhattan and logged 22 miles before wrapping it up. 22 miles one day, 18 miles the next. That is the life of Carolyn Mather. That's because she holds the record for female runners for lifetime miles. As of the week this podcast comes out, she's logged nearly 204,000 miles. That's close to a marathon a day for more than three decades. I was fascinated by this. Why do this to yourself? How does she stay healthy? What does her day look like? I asked Carolyn to walk me through her normal morning routine when she's home in Georgia.
1: I get up, do a few chores, um, never set an alarm clock unless I absolutely have to, um, let my body rest as much as possible. I have my breakfast, usually I have oatmeal, yogurt and fruit or something and then i head out the door for two and a half to four hours usually three to four do you
2: do all of your running in
1: one One. long run yeah colleen de used to tell me if i split it up it would be easier and my response was basically i'm too lazy to (laughs) to get all sweaty Change my clothes, take a shower twice a day. Once is enough. I'm usually home by one o'clock. Colleen's best line to me was You leave after breakfast and you come back after lunch.
2: That's about how it works. (laughs) But Carolyn's life wasn't always a running life. In fact, she didn't start running until she was 29. Carolyn grew up in Atlanta and went to a Catholic high school with no women's sports teams. After high school, Carolyn married her first husband, Jack, and had twin baby girls. The family moved to South Georgia, where Carolyn started working as a health educator at a middle school in St. Petersburg. The school needed a track and field coach and, although she'd never run a step, she volunteered for the position. She coached the girls' team for three years. But that whole time, she never ran. She just thought coaching was something you do from the sidelines. In 1978, Jack and the kids moved to Tallahassee for his job, but Carolyn stayed in South Florida for the summer to finish up her master's degree. Looking for ways to fill her time, Carolyn decided to try running herself.
1: And I went to a athletic store, bought a pair of Converse shoes, weren't running shoes, but Converse shoes, and went out to the track. And I had always told my girls I could, anybody could finish one lap around the track. So I did, went out that day, and I couldn't do it. And I was so embarrassed, because I'm like, well, maybe everybody can't do it. Um, That got me started.
2: That August, there was a five-mile race on campus. Carolyn entered, went out way too fast, and hit the wall hard. But she got a ribbon for her age group. At 29 years old, it was her first race, and she was hooked. When she reunited with her family at the end of that summer, one of her daughters, who was 11, started running with her. Together, they ran a 5K that fall.
1: The race was great. We finished dead last, but we got a t shirt. And I know nowadays that sounds stupid, but back then it was a huge prize. And we literally told everybody about our, about our shirts and my husband and other daughter wanted one and we said, no, you haven't earned it. So um, that was really cool. The following year I went back and I won the race in 1845.
2: From dead last to winning, all in the span of a year. After that, she joined her first track group, and running became a daily ritual. After starting a Ph.D. program at Florida State, she began waking up at 4 a.m. to run. Soon, the marathon became her target.
1: And at that point, I still didn't know that much about running, and everyone said, oh, you have to qualify for Boston. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Well, I figured I could run a 330, but that was the year Boston decided the standard for all women was sub 320. And I'm like, man, lost three minutes or 10 minutes before I even started. But I went. In December 79 and ran 317
2: Um, so I qualified. Carolyn kept training and racking up the mileage and in 1984 she ran her marathon PR of two hours 51 minutes and 40 seconds which was just 24 seconds off qualifying for the 1984 US Olympic marathon trials. That same year she and Jack divorced. In 1987, Carolyn married her second husband, Steve Mather. The two became a devoted pair, and thanks to Carolyn, Steve became a runner, too. Carolyn coached him through seven marathons and ran every training run by his side. She often ran twice a day, once with Steve and then again on her own. In February of 2015, Steve was diagnosed with bladder cancer. He died seven months later. He's at peace now,
1: he's out of pain, but he retired at age 47. So we spent 25 years together all the time. So I miss him terribly, but he, um, he's with me. Just his spirit, the body's gone. Running for me is mental health
2: <laughs> and uh, it's, it's worked. So. so, as to the question for why Carolyn runs so much, it's shifted from a focus on training and performance to the opportunity to communicate with Steve, doing something they loved. Chasing a world record of lifetime miles, that was never her agenda. I never decided that. It just happened. Um, in fact,
1: when Ambie told me, Burfoot, that I was in the top women in the country... My response was, that can't possibly be true. Everybody runs a lot, but obviously not as much as me. Um, And I knew that, but I didn't think it was anything
2: very special. But what kind of responses would you get and do you get from people when you tell them about your running routine? Um, I don't tell most people because they think I'm crazier than they already think I am. (laughs) What amazes me about Carolyn is that she's run more than 200,000 miles largely injury-free. I wanted to know what she thinks makes her so resilient. I
1: grew up in a non-technology age, so um, I really never um, thought about timing stuff, except when my coach was doing it. And I just, I've always run how I feel and,
2: what do you mean by that, running, how you feel?
1: Well, on I don't plan out workouts. I just basically run 20 miles a day. But I, I um, go out, warm up, and then figure out um, what I'm gonna do that day. Um, most days I do some speed work. Um, long, short, whatever. And I just, I do what my body says I can do. Um, I know 20 is about my average, but I literally um, listen to my body.
2: If I feel something twinging or whatever, I back it off. I asked Carolyn when she last took a day off, and the question briefly stumped her. Um, I think two weeks ago,
1: this past Wednesday, I had a root canal failed and developed an abscess under one of my crowns and literally I looked like a Halloween monster on Wednesday. I had swelling from under my eye to below my chin.
2: I stayed in bed the whole day. So that's pretty extreme though. I mean, how often do you take rest days? That was my second one this year. Mind you, we were talking in November. So, Carolyn, if tomorrow running was taken away from you, what would that mean? What would you do? I'd probably cry
1: a while. <laughs> but other than that, I've learned that. Since losing my husband, and I've known this for a long time, but every day is a gift, and when I first met my husband, I'll never forget, he rode on a bike with me in a race, and I was second again, did that a lot, and I was bawling at the finish, and he said, knowing nothing about running, this the last 10k that will ever be? And I'm like, you stupid idiot, they have them every weekend. And he's like, then why are you crying? And I thought, wow, he's right. Why am I crying? So I have friends who once they have to stop running, they think their life is over. Fortunately, I'm blessed to know the best and the worst runners in the world. And I know we can all get by without it. And that's why I do So much volunteering now because i want to give back to the sport that's given so much to me and i do coach i've never charged anybody a penny for coaching um it's all about giving back so if tomorrow i couldn't i'd hope i'd be healthy enough to continue to give back
2: and so last question tell me a little bit about your goals going forward I'd like to, if I'm there here that long, I'd like to finish
1: New York or Boston when I'm 100. (laughs) Seriously. Um, We'll see, you know. So I could have another bizarre record. And I hope um, if I live long enough to get to a quarter of a million miles. That sounds cool to me. (laughs) Um, It's only... 49,000 more, so it should be doable if I live.
0: (laughs) That was producer Sylvia Ryerson with Carolyn Mather doing what Carolyn does best. Okay, I don't know about anyone else out there, but I'll admit, I have always wanted my three kids to love running. I've logged plenty of miles with them over the years, and I have learned the hard way not to push them or to push running onto them. At the very beginning, I really wish I had gotten the kind of advice that digital editor Chris Michael got recently. Chris wanted to know how to get his daughter running in a way that was safe for her, of course, but in a way that was fun, too.
3: A few months back, I took my six-year-old daughter Aki to a nearby park for a Where's Waldo scavenger hunt hosted by our local running store. For a while now, I've been trying to find ways to run with her. She's been begging to come on runs with me. The scavenger hunt was a chance for us to run together, but it's not the same as the running that I do that Aki really wants to join me on. I wasn't active as a kid, and I want her childhood to be different. That day, we ran over paths, across grass, and through playground equipment, looking for little paper cutouts of Waldo. Hey, Daddy, there's a Waldo! It was a ton of fun, but how can we run together the way she wants? I started running because I love my daughter. After Aki was born, I realized I didn't want to be out of shape. I wanted to be healthy enough to run around with my kids. I surprised myself by discovering I love running, too. When Aki was little, I'd put her in a jogging stroller and take her with me. Now, every time I get my gear on, she begs to come along. She's still at the age where she wants to do anything I'm doing. I would love to take her with me, but I know nothing about running with kids. Do they need to be a certain age? Are there developmental concerns or injuries to watch out for? And most importantly, how can I make it fun so that Aki can learn to love it the way I do? For some answers, I called up Dr. Jorge Gomez, a medical doctor specializing in sports medicine at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. Hello, Dr. Gomez. Hi, Dr. Gomez. This is Christopher Michael. How are you doing? Oh, good, thanks. How are you? Good. Not only Uh, does Dr. Gomez care for young athletes, but he's a runner and a father himself. When his kids were growing up, he taught them to run track, so he knows his stuff. The first thing he told me, kids have a distinct advantage over adults when it comes to running. They're naturally inclined to be active.
4: You know, At her age, she's going to sort of equate doing physically active things with having fun, hopefully. Me- meaning when, when she feels like doing something physically active, the, the, the main reason for her doing that is going to be to have fun.
3: So Aki is ready to have a good time. All I have to do is not ruin it. Like with the scavenger hunt, the trick is to make running into games, to play. And they don't need to be terribly formal games either. Think tag or even just racing each other. But how long should our outings be? And would too much running put her at a higher risk for muscle strains or even stunt her growth? Dr. Gomez
4: eased my worries. Distance running in young children doesn't seem to carry any greater risk of injuries, specifically growth plate injuries, than than participation in any other kinds of activities okay in other words it's not not riskier say than playing soccer or playing basketball or playing tennis so if i were giving you advice on you know trying to figure out how long she could run yeah i would just say just go out and see you know you know p- pick a distance pick uh, a mile okay and see if she see if she can do that without complaining or see if she can do that without you know the next day feeling oh gosh i'm really sore or you know or that wasn't any fun And younger children i think are much better about uh, n- not sort of pushing through discomfort than teenagers are right? so in other words when they you know they start feeling hot feeling thirsty they're going to stop they're going to get water they're going to lay low the teenagers okay. Are, are going to like because they're driven by other things. are going to tend to push through that.
3: Okay, so I can I can basically let her sort of dictate and not worry too much yeah, about
4: r- 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 right. But you also have to, I mean I think I then they need children need to be pushed a little bit, and you need to tell you know, we're, we're going to go off a run, and uh, you tell me when you get tired, or you tell me when you need okay. a drink, or or you tell me when it's not fun, because because on, on the other hand, you know children tend to be pleasers, and they're going to want to do, you know, if, if they think yeah. that your main goal is to see how long she can stick with you, then, then she, then she may, may be willing to push through some discomfort. And on the other hand, if you say, I just want to see what she can do, and you, you let me right. know, then it's much more likely that, she, that you, you're going to get, sort of get an honest assessment of, of what her, you know, what her threshold is. Okay.
3: This was encouraging. I mean, I know Aki will be excited to join me, but I feel like she'll only want to keep running if I can get her to be excited by seeing what she can do. At the same time, I need to make sure she feels comfortable enough to tell me when she's hit her limit. Luckily, I know that she'll have no problem telling me when it's time to go home. She has never had trouble being honest with me. But there was one other thing I was worried about. Footwear. Aki has strong ideas about what she should be wearing at all times. We have a pair of sneakers for her, but she if if she gets to choose what she wants to, to wear for the day, it is princess slippers. You <laughs> know, or do I need to worry about what
4: shoe she's wearing? If, if she has a fairly normal foot and, and by that I mean it's not excessively flat or she doesn't have a super high arch and her foot's mm-hmm. pretty flexible and, 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 and she's of, of you know, normal weight for her age and height, then then it, it actually doesn't really matter that much.
3: Dr. Gomez left me with one last piece of advice. Make sure Aki is doing lots of different things in addition to running. What we adults call cross-training, and honestly, what I don't do enough of. That means swimming, bike riding, even climbing trees. The more varied her fun is, the better her balance and overall strength will become. And the better runner she'll be, too. What's this sound that you're doing? (laughs) Aki and I now run together around our neighborhood once or twice a week. We try to find new routes, and I occasionally challenge her a little, but with Dr. Gomez's advice in mind, I make sure the most important thing is that we're having fun. We, go. we play lots of games. Often, she makes them up and tells me what they are. She's learning how to spell, and sometimes we play a racing game, where she tells me what she wants to do by spelling the word. Ready? T-O, oh. like this, Oh my gosh, you're going so fast. <laughs> Can we hold hands? Sure. We run a lot, holding hands, actually. It feels a little awkward as a runner, but as a father, there's no better feeling in the world. At some point during every run, usually before I'm ready, it happens.
5: Can we stop at this pole here?
3: Yes. Okay. Who knows if she'll grow up to be a runner, but we're running now. Still, I wanted to know if this was something she was just doing to make me happy or if she was also getting something from it. Why do you like running? Um.
2: Well, it's hard to explain, but it's just, in some way, on my belly. Yeah. It just feels very calm and relaxing.
3: That's exactly what I like about it too. We have a lot of fun horsing around, and it feels like a special thing that we get to do together. And who knows. Maybe someday I'll be pulling on my gear for a Sunday 10-miler, and she'll be gearing up to come with me. Hopefully, I'll be able to keep up.
5: Okay, I'm going to go back home now.
3: Okay.
0: That was digital editor Chris Michael with his daughter, Aki. Okay, here's the kick with producer Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox. Okay,
6: so we start this kick off with a pretty somber story, as David mentioned at the top of the show. Ed Whitlock um, rewrote the Masters record book for runners over 70. Um, he died on Monday in Toronto, not far from his home in Milton, Ontario. Um, He was 86, and Kit, we've talked about Ed a lot in the kick since we've been doing the show, and we've talked about him on the website. He's he's an ageless wonder, and we, we were floored on Monday when the news came out that he died from prostate cancer.
5: Yeah, you know, his birthday was, was only about a week ago, um, and pretty much up until this moment he's been setting age group records ever since last year (laughs) yeah exactly um ever since really he was 68 years old he's been setting so many age group records i believe he has 22 official age group world records Some of the highlights being he is the um, only person to break three hours in the marathon at age 70 or older. Amazing. And he's also the oldest person to ever break four hours in the marathon. He did that last year at age 85, running a 356 in Toronto. Plus, he owns the um, age group world record at 80 and over, and he not only broke that, um, he he crushed
6: that under four hour mark with a three fifteen fifty four. So, at
5: age 80, Ed Whitlock is a he's faster, faster than, than I am.
6: Both of us, like on a normal marathon run.
5: Yeah, and um, you know, we got to speak to a lot of people that knew Ed, and just a couple things uh, stuck out to me. Kind of one of the the legendary things that he would do he pretty much only exclusively trained running laps around a cemetery about right. 100 feet from his home mm-hmm. and um you know he would he was known for wearing like 20 year old running shoes he would say you know they don't make running shoes like they used to uh <laughs> he he wore a 30 year old running vest um he showed up to press conferences always wearing a suit and tie right and talking to a lot of these people, one of the things that consistently they said, they said two things. One is um, he was like the humblest, most gracious guy ever. He he kind of was amazed at all the, all the attention he was getting. Um, but two, everyone else was just – amazed at how beautiful his running form was. Right. Yeah. And and
6: he always seemed when people asked him like what's your secret? He he didn't really have a secret. Like he said he he was pretty simple in how he ran, just doing loops yeah, close just, to
5: home. He would say, you know, I love to run. And and one of the amazing scenes that was described to me by the race director of the Toronto Waterfront Marathon where he was, set a lot of his age yeah, group records was that you would see Ed um in his 70s pacing to run just under 3 hours. And he was he, by that at that point he was pretty well known, so um, he'd get kind of a pace group around him because people mm-hmm. knew that he was aiming to go under three hours. you'd get guys that are 25 26 trying to hang on to this grandpa with flowing white hair and they couldn't he would drop them and you know 72 73 and and he would break three hours you know he was 73 ran a 254
6: yeah i was looking at a lot of his race photos from the past few years and it's amazing to see his like face of determination and and kind of joy in closing out a lot of races and then people probably half his age behind him struggling at the finish it just shows like how efficient and amazing of a runner he was
5: yeah i just i just can't even imagine and he kind of he baffled scientists and just just expert runners was really well-respected. So um, we uh, wish Ed's family the best, and we're just, uh, you know, amazed at what he accomplished.
6: Okay, now moving on in the kick this week, uh, a couple other stories we found really interesting um, just for impressive feats, for one. um, It's on the indoor track, the NCAA indoors, were this past weekend— in College Station, Texas at Texas A&M, so a lot of fast runners there. But there was one runner in particular, and he's been dominating the sport from cross-country to indoor track to outdoor track, and that's Edward Chesarek.
5: Oh, King Chesarek. King Ches just once again proving that he he may be the greatest, at least one of the greatest college athletes of all time.
6: So if you don't know who Edward Chesarick is, you're you're gonna be hearing a lot about him in the future, whatever distances he tries to go after. Yeah,
5: and he's a, a senior at the University of Oregon. Yes, yeah,
6: senior at Oregon. So before the weekend he had amassed fifteen NCAA titles and then this weekend he added to that tally. Um so he now has seventeen total, fifteen individual and two relay titles he did it this weekend when he won the 5,000 meters by two seconds and then the next day he won the 3,000 meters out kicking Justin Knight from Syracuse he's also a very good runner um he could have won a third event at the meet but he was beaten a tactical race by Josh Kerr of the University of New Mexico um so he only won two (laughs) titles this past weekend
5: yeah and I mean What's even more amazing about this, as you mentioned, his, his season's not over. He's mm-hmm. still got outdoor track. Um, so he's going to close in on the most individual titles ever for a college athlete. Right now, that's owned by Jenny Thompson. She was a swimmer at Stanford, and she's got 19.
6: 19 so, titles for her. So
5: Chez trails by two.
6: So definitely keep your radar on the outdoor finals later this year. We'll, we'll update you here in the kick, but you should watch that race. You could watch history.
5: Yeah, King Chez. Dominating everyone.
6: Okay, and so one final thing for the kick this week, Um, we're staying on the indoor track, but we're going to the Great White North in Canada. There was a crazy, crazy finish in the men's three thousand meter race. Um, I got a, I got a kick out of watching this, the end of this race. There's a great video. Yeah,
5: this, this is a pretty, pretty funny video. You guys should watch it at runnersroll.com/audio. We'll have the link up. But uh, Brian, take us through what happened.
6: Yeah, so as I said, it's the men's 3,000 meters at the 2017 U Sports Track and Field Indoor Championship. So it's a championship meet for these colleges in Canada, these universities. And um, so a 3,000 meter, that's 15 laps on an indoor track, 200-meter track. And um, like most races, there's a countdown ticker who's Mm -hmm. keeping track of that. And there was a mistake made. Instead of going from eight to seven to six... Um they jumped straight from eight to six. And that led to some confusion on the
5: final lap. So right, the um there's three runners in the lead uh, and the bell goes off signaling that there's one more lap. So two of the runners and what are their names, Brian?
6: Yeah, the two runners who were in the lead and they were they kind of made their final kick in this final two hundred thinking it's the final lap, Connor Black and Jack Schaefer, they're they're struggling it out toward the finish, and they cross the finish line at 2,800 meters, and thinking
5: that they're done. They
6: think they're done, and that they collapse,
5: in- you know, gassed, thinking that it was an exciting race. Yeah,
6: it, they think they're one and two, but you see Antoine Thibault from Laval University, he continues on, on the track. And a lot of the people behind them thought the race was over too, because the clock stopped. But Antoine, he keeps going, he finishes the race and he wins the event. Actually his teammate kept going as well, because apparently they were the only coaching staff at Laval telling people, "Um, you haven't done 15 laps, you need to keep going.
5: Although my theory, are we sure that Canadians use the number seven? I mean, (laughs) money's different. Measurements different. I who knows. Um, but I, I think in all seriousness, one of my favorite moments is when Antoine's in the lead on the last lap, uh, and he kind of realizes what's happening. So with about a hundred meters ago, he looks behind him and has this little smirk on his face. Yeah, because like, there's no one like, near him. Like math, I did it right. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. he wins. So um, yay to the people that like numbers. A win for them.
6: Jack Schaefer. He he. You know he stopped. After the finish, he didn't get back into the race. Give credit to Connor Black, though. He didn't quit. He, he jumped back into the race, and he finished fourth. The one thing that I find really interesting with this is, besides the miscommunication that threw off all of these mm-hmm. runners, is um, you know, maybe consider that it's very unlikely that you're setting a 30-second PR. In an event like this, because you think that would have come to their mind,
5: unless you had the theory that okay. in, in the heat of the moment, you're really not keeping track you're, of your time. You're gassed. You're not thinking about time. You hear a bell. You you're run going for one a more lap, and you and you're trying to out sprint the guy next to you. So, um, unfortunate situation <laughs> made for a really it makes funny for video. a good video. Yes.
6: All right. Well, Kit, thanks for coming down, sharing what you heard from speaking with people who knew Ed Whitlock, and doing the kick one more time this week.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Okay, before we call it quits this week, a couple of things for you. First, please send us your training questions. Maybe you're looking for a great 5K track workout, or maybe you're wondering what the difference is between a tempo run and a threshold run. Or maybe you're just dying for someone to tell you it's okay to ride your bike on a rest day. Whatever your training-related query, send it to us. We have another training roundtable coming up on the show, where we answer listener questions and we might just answer yours. Email us your question at rwaudio at rodale.com. That's R-O-D-A-L-E. Or send us a message on our Facebook page at rwaudio or tweet us at rwaudio. And that's not all. We are also looking for your stories on why you started running. Perhaps you started as a way to honor a loved one or overcome a demon or just to prove a point. If you've got a great story to share and you're planning on being in Boston in the days before the marathon, you might get the chance to record that story with us in Boston and be featured on a special episode of Runner's World's Human Race podcast. Okay, that's it. Thanks, as always, for your ratings and reviews. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, Brian Dalek, and Mervin Deganos. Be sure to join us next week for an interview with Olympian, fisherman, and status quo disruptor Nick Simmons. I will also have an update on my moonshot marathon pursuit. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next week.